Well, Merry Christmas to you. And how much fun is this to get to spend Christmas morning together? Who's already opened all your gifts? You opened all the presents under the tree, the papers laying on the floor, you came to church. Okay, there we go. Second crew, these are the people who have got a lot of self-control, restraint, patience. If you've got that fruit of the Spirit, patience, you just raise your hand. You say, I'm waiting till after church to open my presents. That's good. I'm waiting too. So we are so excited for both groups to be here today. And I don't know about you, but something about gathering around the tree, opening presents, everybody's got their own traditions around that. Some of you have lists, like you can't open any gift you want. You have to open a certain gift at a certain time, and there's a progression. But in our house, as long as I can remember growing up as a kid and even what we do today, is that we read the Christmas story before we open gifts. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest gift. We give gifts because God gave. We want the kids to think that way and, and process that way. And that's very hard for Calvin. He's six years old and he can barely contain himself while we're reading the Christmas story. He's trying to digest like angels, Bethlehem, and no room in the end, but all he can see is his stack of presents. He's so excited. And I don't know what your Christmas traditions are, but as you read that first Christmas story, and I was thinking about reading it again this year, my mind went to the question of who was the first person who ever read the Christmas story recorded in Luke chapter 2. Who was the first person who ever read that story about Mary and Joseph traveling and the census being taken and angels filling the sky? Who was the first person who ever read those words? And when you go to Luke chapter 1, Luke actually gives us the answer. Look at verse 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. There's our answer. The first person to ever read the Christmas story that you might read before you open presents is a man named Theophilus. Luke calls him most honorable Theophilus and uses that phrase three times in his writing. And every time he uses it, it references a Roman or a high-ranking Roman official. And so we assume that this is also true of Theophilus. He's a person of status. He's a person of influence. He's very likely a government official. And he's interested in the things of God. He's interested in what Jesus said and did. And so Luke says, I've undertaken to write an account for you based on what the earliest eyewitnesses said. But it's not that Luke just wrote the details about what happened and kind of gave him an outline of how Jesus, you know, walked and lived and died. And he didn't, it wasn't just the brass tacks. He wrote with a specific purpose in mind that he had an aim for the story that he recorded for Theophilus. And we get that goal, that specific aim in verse four. Look at this. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Now, that word, be certain, is a Greek word, asphalion, that means locked down. It means secure. It means unshakable, solid, stable, immovable, that you could have an a, a unshakable certainty. You know, and there's power in certainty. 
There's a power when you are confident in what God's word says. There's a power when you live out of that stability, out of that confidence, out of that unshakableness. And yet, I recognize that in our present day, there are prominent voices, even prominent Christian voices, that say that certainty has no place in the life of faith. That's a problem. Why? One, it's not biblical. Luke just said he wrote Theophilus so that he can have certainty. But also, it robs you of the power that God, by the Holy Spirit, inspired the biblical text to produce in your life. That God intended to give you certainty. God intended to give you an immovable faith. God intended to give you something that was unshakable so that when the storms of life hit on your life, you would have a rock-solid foundation. He wants to give you that. He wants to give Theophilus that, and me that, and you that. But I want you to notice something in the text. Luke says, I have undertaken to write an accurate account for you so that you can be certain. So how does Theophilus access the certainty that Luke wrote to give him? He's got to read it. He's got to read what Luke wrote if he wants the certainty that Luke intended to give him. And can I tell you, it's the same for you and me. That certainty about what God wants to do in your life, certainty about who Jesus is, certainty about what Jesus has done, certainty about where God is taking you and what God has for you comes from diving into God's word. One of the most important things you can do as we look toward the year ahead is commit to daily being in God's word. And guess what it will do in your life? It'll fuel certainty. It'll give you an immovability in your faith. It'll strengthen you. It'll move you forward on a rock-solid foundation that God intended to give you. Certainty. And yet, as we think about Luke's gospel... It's important for us to understand that that certainty doesn't just reside in the opening verses. He's saying that every verse he wrote, every chapter he wrote, every section, every passage has the same intention so that Theophilus, so that you and so that I can be certain, be certain. That includes the Christmas story, by the way. Luke chapter two was written to give you certainty. And there are some, and you've come in today and as you think about the Christmas story, you know the narrative, but you're not sure. You're not sure, was, is Jesus real? Did he really come? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. Was Jesus God? Is, is he who he says he is? Is he who people say he is? You're uncertain about what Jesus came to do. Did he really come to work in the lives of people? And Luke writes what he does in Luke chapter 2 to give you some certainties. And the first certainty is this, that you can be certain that Jesus came. Look at Luke chapter two and verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
Luke says you can have certainty that Jesus came. Here's the thing. As you come into Christmas, it feels like there's always a fresh batch of clickbait articles that get written calling into question that very fact. Like, did Jesus really come? Know the truth. And then it's like, click here on Yahoo to find out. You know, like, like you're going to uncover what nobody else has ever thought about. And yet I read four days ago an article in Forbes magazine that called the Christmas story found in the biblical text an enduring Christmas legend. And this writer ended his article by saying this, the gospel of Matthew, which was written around 80 AD, long after any of these events occurred, if they even did. End of article. The world that we live in and the culture that we're surrounded by continually pumps out the narrative that Jesus didn't really come. Jesus, who knows if he's even real? And yet scholars who study the biblical text tell us that Luke wrote in a very intentional way. He wrote as a historian with historiographic text and verbiage and phrasing. Why? Because Luke is writing accounts that an account of Jesus' life that he intends to give people confidence with in the fact that Jesus came. Jesus really came. In fact, I would just say this to you, though there are clickbait articles that are generated at breakneck speed, the fact is there is no serious historian alive today, even secular historian, who doesn't believe that Jesus was a real person and that Jesus came. Here's the thing. Luke wrote so that you could have a confidence, you could have a certainty that Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem, that the inns were full, and Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a manger, and that he came. You can be certain of that. You can be certain. Not only that, though, but Luke adds to that. You can be certain that he is God. Jesus is God. Go back to Luke chapter 2 real quick. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, I want to pause right there. One of the first marks in Luke's text that gives us certainty that Jesus is God is who announced his coming. That the coming of Jesus was announced by the mouthpiece of heaven. It was announced by angels. The angel came to Joseph. We're going to see that in a moment. Angels filled the sky after this angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and announced the birth of Jesus. This is heaven's announcement, not earth's. This isn't the disciples' announcement. This is the announcement of angels the hosts of heaven. And Jesus' birth is announced in a supernatural way, which speaks to who he is, that he is the supernatural king of creation. He said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Part of the way then Luke continues his authentication of who Jesus is 
and adds fuel to the fire of Theophilus' certainty about Jesus being God is the phrase he uses and quotes from the angel, that he is Christ the Lord. In Greek, Christos Kurios. Christ being this title that is ascribed to Jesus that means God's anointed Messiah. He's the anointed deliverer. You know, as you read the Old Testament, cover to cover, page after page tells us the promise of God to send a deliverer. Then actually, when you get to Luke's gospel, what Luke is making crystal clear is that Jesus didn't just come as a deliverer. He came as the deliverer. He came as the fulfillment of every promise that God made through the prophets in Scripture. Jesus is it. He's the fulfillment. It's what God had promised to do all along, that God had promised to send the Messiah, promised to send a deliverer. But the angels don't just call him Christ. Because if they just call him Christ, that won't fully signal his identity to the shepherds, and subsequently to us. The angels call him Christ the Lord. What does Lord mean? What did Lord mean to the shepherds standing on the outskirts of Bethlehem in the middle of the night? What did it mean to them? It meant God Almighty. That's what it means today. As you read the biblical text, Lord signals God is in the text. This is God Almighty. That's who Jesus is. He's God, very God. God wrapped in humanity, fully human, fully divine. This is who the angels are saying he is. God has come. In Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, 26 times Luke refers to Jesus as Lord, which means 26 times he refers to Jesus as God. And this is the collective witness of the New Testament writers, that 747 times in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament refer to Jesus as God. Why? Because Jesus is God. And I realize that as I say that, there are some, and you've come in, and as we talk about Christmas, and as we think about Christmas, it may not be that you're uncertain that Jesus is God. It just may be that your life is filled with a lot of shaky things. That relationships are shaky. Your marriage is shaky. Your home life is shaky. Your mental health is shaky. Things at work are shaky. And there's so much uncertainty around you. You wonder if you're going to even be able to make it through. Can I remind you? That the God who sent Jesus, the Son of God, into a broken world to rescue humanity is able to do the impossible in your life today. He's able to work in your situation. He's able to meet your needs. He's able to work in the uncertainty of what you're facing through the certain power of Almighty God to bring about resolution to the problems that you're facing. Why? Because he's God and you can be certain that he's God. And you can bring that certainty to bear on everything else that you face and you're facing in life. You can be certain that Jesus came. You can be certain that Jesus is God, but oh, it gets better. You can be certain that Jesus saves. Go back to verse 11 and look at this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What are the angels announcing? They're announcing that God sent a savior. It's the same announcement. It's the same recognition that Zechariah gives voice to in Luke chapter one. Look at what Zechariah says. God has sent us a mighty savior. Aren't you thankful that when God sent Jesus, he wasn't just sending us a savior. He was sending us the savior. And he wasn't just sending us the savior. He was sending us the mighty savior. He's mighty to save. And God sent Jesus and Jesus came as a savior. Because we needed a savior. Because you need a savior. When the angel came to Joseph and told him Mary was going to have a baby, look at what he said about Jesus. And she, Mary, will have a son. And you are to name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The good news of Christmas is that God sent Jesus on assignment. That Jesus entered humanity not to just show us what God was like, but to do something about what we are, our condition. Recognizing our need, God sent a Savior. And he came, yes, absolutely, 100%. He came to save you from your sin. Saving you from your sin is just the beginning of what God wants to do in your life. That when a person meets Jesus, when they have a relationship with God, not only is their sin forgiven past, present, and future, but they enter into a relationship with God that sin made impossible. Sin had separated from, from God. Sin had made it impossible for them to walk with God day in and day out. And yet now that their sin is taken care of, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, to change you from the inside out and allow you to experience God's power and God's presence and God's peace in your life. That's one of the miracles that when we talk about the gift of Jesus, the gift of a savior. It's the gift of experiencing all that God wants to do in your life from the moment you begin your relationship with him. That everything about your life begins to change. Why? Because God has entered the scene. He's not just saving you so one day you can spend eternity in heaven with him, although that is massive. He's saving you so he can walk with you. He's not just saving you from something. He's saving you to something. Jesus came as the Savior. What I love in what the angels say, when you go back to Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, when they announced that Jesus came, they say there's peace available for those with whom he is pleased. Notice they don't say, there's peace available if you please him. 
which is the way a lot of people approach God. I get from God if I please him. If I measure up, if I make the grade, if I say the right thing and do the right thing, then somehow I can curry God's favor and earn a relationship with him. The angel says, that's actually not how it works. That there is peace for those with whom he is pleased. In other words, when Jesus saves you, God is pleased with you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did. You get the pleasure of heaven on your life because Jesus saved you into relationship with God. Now you're not earning your way there, which you could never do anyway. You're not living to measure up. You're living out of a love relationship with the king of all creation. Jesus saves people into relationship with the living God. And here's the miracle of how he does that. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians. God made him, that being Jesus, who had no sin. He was perfect. He was spotless. He never said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing. A perfect life. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the amazing thing. It's the great exchange. Your sin for his perfection. So that when God sees you, once you have asked God to save you, he sees Jesus. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's some in this room, and quite honestly, you've never done that. As we come to Christmas 2022, there's never been a moment where you've asked God to change you from the inside out, to make you a new person. And so you've come into this room, and you're trying to measure up. You're trying to make the grade. And yet the Bible says our righteousness is filthy rags. Like on our best day, never measure up. The only way that a person experiences the power of God, not only to forgive their sin, but to change their life, to give them new life, new purpose, new peace, new power, is through relationship with God. Do you have that? 